Today's scripture reading is taken from Habakkuk chapter 3 verses 1 to 19. Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Taman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light, raised flesh from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth, he looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers, or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation. You stripped the sheaf from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place, at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You trashed the nations in anger. You went on for the salvation for your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields you no food, the flock be cut off from the foe, and there be no herd in the stores. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes my tread on my high places. To the choir master with string instruments. This is God's word. Thanks, uh, Cheryl, for reading God's word for us this morning. And good morning, beloved in Christ. Good morning. I'm really delighted to see some of us gathered in this worship hall in person to hear God's Word, to praise Him, as well as to encourage one another. And for those who are viewing online, welcome as well. Um, I'm glad you can join us this morning. And to our friends who are visiting with us, either in person this morning or online, I warmly welcome you to this worship service of grace Baptist Church. 
Today we will conclude our three-part sermon series in the book of Habakkuk, one of the Old Testament prophets. This message will be our last talk from the series on the theme of hope. From next week onwards, we'll have two messages from the book of Psalms and end our year with our Advent series, um, a series of uh, messages from the Gospel of John. So as we prepare to hear from this last message on hope, let us pray and uh, ask God to prepare our hearts. Let us pray. Father God, I waited patiently for you, O Lord, and you listened to my cry. You lifted me up out of the merry pit. You put my feet on a rock. You put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. I pray that many will see and fear you and trust the Lord Jesus Christ for your glory and for our joy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You know, there's the world summit now on the crisis, uh, crisis of climate change. So if you read the news or listen to the news the last couple of days, dominating the news are the twin crises of COVID-19 and climate change and how this has adverse impact on our lives. And we see that many people are anxious. Closer to home, some of us have experienced bullying in schools. Some of us have experienced unfair treatment in our workplaces. Many among us are indignant. We are wondering why life is so unfair. And although we do not face widespread systematic persecution among Christians here in Singapore, there is a growing sentiment that being a Christian is seen as odd or strange. And many of us believers, we are fearful of the coming change. When faced with calamity and crisis of various degrees, many of us will struggle to even cope. Much less would we be able to rejoice in the face of it. So how can I rejoice in the face of calamity and crisis? We have covered Habakkuk uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2. In 1, 1 to 2, 5, the prophet Habakkuk complain about Judah's violence, wickedness, and injustice, and then about God's response in sending the Babylonians. That passage climaxed with the declaration that the righteous must live by faith, ultimately trusting God's word and God to do what is just. Then what follows were the five woes as outlined in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 6 to 20 which declared the downfall of the wicked and violent Babylonians. Both because their violence contained the seed of their own self-destruction and because of God's coming future judgment upon them. And this woes climax in declaring that God's presence is in the temple. But you realise through it all, as God responded to the prophet, God did not give a timetable for which for when he will throw, overthrow the wicked Babylonians. These first two sections of the book stress the importance of living by faith. It acknowledges that God keeps His word and that God's justice will ultimately be seen. But what does it mean for those of us who live in a world marked by violence and injustice? How can one rejoice in the face of calamity 
and crisis. Specifically, in Habakkuk's situation, calamity and crisis due to the sins of God's people and the coming judgment by God through the Babylonians. But also, more generally, this applies to all of us believers. How can believers rejoice in the face of calamity and crisis brought on by a broken world, brought on by a world that is largely opposed to Christ? And this answer is seen in chapter 3 of Habakkuk, which we will look at today. So how can one rejoice in the face of calamity and crisis? If you have your Bibles, please keep them open as we turn to Habakkuk chapter 3. There are 19 verses in this uh, chapter, and this is the outline for the passage today. We'll talk about how we, can, we, sh- we should remember God's past works. we talk about how God comes in power and justice to save. And finally, we end our study in Habakkuk by looking at how we can take joy in the God of our salvation. The outline is also in the ministry guide, and you can use uh, the online ministry guide to also take down your thoughts. So we remember God's past works. Habakkuk 2 ends with a vision of the Lord God and His holy temple. Habakkuk 3 sees the prophet responding to this vision with a prayer song. So we see Habakkuk the prophet pleading for mercy in verses 1 to 2. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigonoth, O Lord, I heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Verse 1 introduces this chapter as a prayer, a prayer of the prophet Habakkuk. However, if you look at this 19 verses, there are also musical directions in this 19 verses, just like many of the Psalms. Uh, the phrase, according to Shigonov, verse 1, to the choir master with string instruments, we see this at the end of the chapter in verse 19, and the threefold salah in verse 3, 9, and 13. What this tells us is it tells us that this is a song. And this song was not only a prayer song by Habakkuk, but this song is to be sung by God's people together in the temple. This prayer is to be sung by God's people together while facing the coming crisis. When you're in a situation, you know, my friends, if you're in a situation to doubt your best friend, one way to restore your confidence is to remember his past loyalty. You know, you recall how many times he has helped you for your good in the past. This remembering of God's past work for his people is what the prophet does in verse 2. In fighting doubts about God's faithfulness, the prophet recalls what God has done for his people in the past. The record of God's mighty works of old fill the prophet with both awe and hope. What God did in the former days, God can do again. The prophet begs God to renew or revive his work as the years move towards the time that is set uh, for God's judgment. And this is uh, not new. We see patterns of this in many prayers of trust that is found in the Bible. 
They begin by recounting God's faithfulness in the past. We see this, for example, in Psalm 90. And they reveal steadfast hope in God's promises for the future. We see this in Psalm 121. This pattern of prayer is seen most clearly in the Psalms. Because of God's past faithfulness and future promises, we can pray with faith in the present without losing heart. Trouble and turmoil mark the present futures of the people of God. And even so, the prophet pleads, in wrath, remember mercy. As God's judgment upon His people, uh, utilizing the Babylonians uh, comes, Habakkuk begs God to remember and show mercy, just as God has done before. In reviewing God's faithfulness in Israel's history, Habakkuk can then face his fears with faith and trust in the God of all history. For at the climax of all human history, the long-form Messiah did come. God did indeed in wrath remember mercy. At the cross of Christ, God's wrath was poured on His own Son so that those of us who trust in Christ, we might be forgiven and washed clean in this great act of mercy. And this first two verses set up for the rest of the passage to come. We plead God's mercy. The prophet here models for us, acknowledging God's wrath on our sins and yet pleading for God's mercy. What this does is that it encourages us to confess our sins humbly and to approach God to ask for His mercy. As an elders team, we've been reviewing our service order and we will look to incorporate more elements of confession and pleading of God's mercy in our services. Individually, my friends, how are you patterning your prayers? Do you ask God in His righteous anger against your sins to remember mercy? As we gather in small group, is confession part of your prayer life? As you gather together, do we plead for God's mercy? Do we ask God for the grace of His forgiveness? And as we gather, we remember God's past works together. This remembering is another reason why assembling is vital to the life of the church. Just as Elder Caleb just, just, Caleb just reminded us and encouraged us to gather back as a church, we gather to remember God's past works of deliverance together. In our conversations and songs, in our preaching, in our prayer, we remember what God has done. We remember that He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross in our place for the forgiveness of our sins. We recall He raised Jesus Christ to life on the third day so that we can receive this new eternal life when we place our trust in Jesus Christ. We gather together to remember God's past works and in doing so, we encourage and strengthen one another's hearts for today and for the journey ahead. Verses 3 to 15 continues describing 
in very, in very vivid picture form of uh, God's presence being made visible, of how God comes physically to the aid of His people, routing His enemies, uh, the, their enemies and His enemies, and thus answering the prophet's plea of chapter 1, verse 12 to 17, as well as his prayer of chapter 3, verse 2. So for the next couple of verses, this um, 12 verses or so, remember this is prophetic picture words. So he's using various descriptions and picture that draws on the stock of imagery from the Old Testament to describe God's coming and talk, uh, to describe God's coming judgment and His salvation. So let's look at the first couple of verses first. It talks about God's glory uh, in His coming. So God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of His praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from His hand and there He veiled His power. Before I was uh, called to full-time ministry, I was part of the Ministry of Education headquarters for about four years. Yeah, so besides a teacher, I was a policy maker. And one of the things I learned in uh, Ministry of Education headquarters was this. When a person of political importance attends an event, we would prepare the venue for him. Tables and chairs are moved around, and the entourage will actually accompany him as he comes in. And we, we kind of saw a correlation. The more important, the more prestigious a person is, the more things get moved around, and the bigger the entourage. Because in this way, we want to give the person due honour. We want to give him some glory due to his position. In verses 3 to 8, we see God in His splendour and glory appearing. Creation is shaken and moving around, and He is accompanied by wonder. The prophet's prayer describes a visible appearance of God to His people. And we see several of these descriptions appearing in the Old Testament. And they all narrate God's movement through the promised land from south to north. We see this in Psalm 68. And the verbs used by the prophet indicates that this visible appearance of God is either already occurring or coming soon, even as He speaks. So God is moving, even as the prophet is praying. And only the powerful coming of God and His glory, as He had done in His past, will bring justice for His people. And he gives a lot of imagery here. We talk about God's initial arrival being from Taman. Uh, it's a word that means south. And from Mount Paran, a location located in the northeast of Mount Sinai. He talks about the whole spread of the whole land. And the latter site, uh, this uh, Mount Paran, was the initial stopping point for Israel after leaving Sinai in the Exodus. All, all this imagery, all this language evokes the imagery of the past Exodus event. God, the Holy One, has power, been powerfully been with Israel in their journey through the region in the Exodus. So now again, God similarly comes to His people. The second half of verse 3 then focuses on God's splendor covering the heavens and His praise filling the earth. We see here the pairing of heaven and earth refers to the whole of creation, 
No part of creation is separated from God's glory. This picture of divine splendor is, is expanded in verse 4, which describes God's splendor as brightness flashing from His hands like light, even though His power is veiled. This demonstration of God's power is then the continued emphasis of verse 5 to 8. Before Him, before God went pestilence and plague followed at His heels. He stood and measured the nations. He looked and shook the nations. He looked and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sang low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the hands of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midan did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation. Both plague and pestilence are personified and they travel with God as members of His entourage, one preceding Him and the other following. But what it shows here is that nothing can resist God, not even Pharaoh. Remember, his, Pharaoh's forces could not even fight against the plague and pestilence preceding the Exodus event. Indeed, we see here in verse 6, the whole earth trembled before God's power. This shaking also allows the mountains to be removed, the hills to sink, clearing the path for God's journey. So also, the nations that stood in the way of God's journey trembled. We see this in verse 7. God is coming. And everything else, both in creation and the nations, are shown to be powerless in comparison. And we see again in verse 8 the use of this imagery of the Exodus event. Just as God revealed Himself and worked mightily to ensure safe passage through the Red Sea, God's imminent coming in power would mark a rescue for His people. But God's coming is the coming that brings rescue and salvation for Judah, but a judgment on Babylon. This pattern is also seen in the rescue, greatest rescue event in the history of Israel, the Exodus event. There, the Egyptians are judged and face God's anger. And the Israelites are rescued. There is a pattern in Scripture that sets before us that God brings salvation through judgment. God brings salvation through judgment. And we see this in the following verses where it talks about God's wrath and God's salvation. Verse 9, You strip the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. God is like a warrior with many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and rift. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of their arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You know, the verses before which you covered, we see that the Exodus is alluded to. But from this point on, the prophet draws on the history of Israel and now talks about the conquest of the Promised Land. This conquest of the Promised Land reflects the point where God moves 
from the Sinai Peninsula to enter the Promised Land. It emphasizes God's coming to claim victory, to claim the Promised Land for Himself. The prophet's concern is with life in the Promised Land, with God's people in the Promised Land, particularly the injustice and violence experienced within it. His prayer now focuses on God's power as shown within the land. So it tells us that God's coming in power is not restricted to places out there, to remote places known in the past, but God's power comes and covers the land in which His people now live. God comes complete with chariots and horses, arrows and spears, and comes and overcomes all. God is not a God out there that works out there. God is also a God that works in our midst. God is now addressed directly in His wrath. The rivers feel God's wrath, verse 9 to 10. You know, God's anger is directed not specifically against the waters themselves, but against those who have acted unjustly against Israel. Therefore, the implication is that God's anger will be directed against those who act unjustly now, both the cruel Babylonians and the wicked in Israel. And we see here that God rides His war chariots with His bow and arrows. He acts against the oppressors. God is the one who comes to His people. And verse 9 to 11 continues describing how God's power is seen on the earth we see that God's power splits the earth with rivers. And the, the mountains shake. All these points to God's, points to all created order standing under God's authority and power. All are in, in awe of Him. And because of this, God can act mightily for His people within creation because He controls all creation. Our God is not powerless. He controls all creation. He has power and authority all creation. Therefore, He can act on behalf of His people. And we see here, this verse, uh, the verses here concludes with uh, God's control extending over the control of sun and moon. For those of us who love reading uh, Joshua Conquest of the Promised Land, this actually alludes to event, uh, events in Joshua 10 of how the sun and moon stood still. And the great victory described there included a hailstorm. And this is likely the description of God's arrows and spears. Now, this respect refers to aspect of the psalm, such as hail and lightning. What this does is it reminds us again that all of creation bends to God's will. Finally, verses 12 to 15 concludes this section where God's address directly you marched against the earth in fury. You trashed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the head of his warriors, who came like whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the search of mighty waters." Verse 12 to 13 refers to God's, God's march through the land, which again provides a picture of God's power and ability to bring salvation for His people. And the last part of verse 13 points to the victories God has won over Israel's enemies. It alludes to crushing, the crushing of the head of the offspring of the serpent in Genesis 3. It tells us that God will defeat 
the enemies, his enemies and the enemies of his people. Finally, in closing off this section in verses 14 to 15, he continues with the theme of these victories. Even though the Babylonians had come in great power and had anticipated an easy win, God defeated the enemy soldiers with their own weapons. God slew them with their weapons instead, gaining victory and showing himself to be greater and more powerful than all his foes. God tramples the sea as seen at the end of this section. And our reference to the Exodus account, you know, the remarkable Old Testament example of God's defeating his people's foe in this great redemptive event. What we see here is that God has power over all of creation to save and He will come to save. But when God comes, He will save through judgment. God brings salvation through judgment. The Babylonians are judged and the people of Judah saved. Scripture tells us that all of us, believers and non-believers, will be held accountable and judged. 1 Peter 4.5 tells us, but they will give account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. God will judge all mankind. And the bad news is that all of us will be found lacking. Romans 3.28 tells us, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have failed to meet God's mark and standard. In our thoughts, in our speech, in our hearts, we have sinned against God. But my friends, the fantastic good news is this. Jesus Christ died on the cross and bore God's judgment in our place so that we can be accounted as righteous. We see this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. It tells us there, For our sake, God made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ bore God's judgment in our place so that we can be accounted as righteous. So even for us, God brings salvation through judgment. We are safe because Christ is judged in our place. Jesus Christ was judged so that we might receive salvation. So to my non-Christian friends, if you're here today and listening online, you will be held accountable for your sin and rebellion and rejection of God. The bad news is that you will be held accountable and God will judge you. But the good news is this, that Christ was judged in your place so that if you place your faith in Him, you can know salvation. And if this is your desire, you can speak to your friend who is with you online or watching online with you or your friend who has brought you here or you can drop an email to any of the pastors and elders. We'll be glad to meet up with you and, and just talk about what, what Christ means and how you can receive this salvation through judgment. And our email contacts are on our church website. I also address those of us here who are believers. You know, there may be some of us who are struggling with this fear of God's judgment. Perhaps we failed in our sin struggle again. You know, we said that we will do better, but this week again, we, we gave in to our temptation. Or, or we let the crisis and calamity shake your faith. 
I mean, the last two years with COVID and, and uh, crisis, uh, many of us have been struggling. And maybe some of us may have let that shake our faith. But I urge you, my friends, have confidence that this same God who acted mightily in times past, in the Exodus, in the conquest of the Promised Land, and in Habakkuk's time, is this same God who worked mightily in and through Jesus Christ to save you. Christ has already borne your judgment, so you can place your trust in Him. Or there may be some among us who have grown complacent. You know, yeah, I've been saved. Yeah, so what? Remember, Jesus Christ paid the great price for your salvation. He bore God's judgment in our place so that we might be saved. So live by faith, trusting our God who is our salvation, who brings salvation at such a great cost through judging the judgment of Jesus Christ. And then live and bear fruit in accord with your salvation. We end with uh, verse 16 and 19. We come to the end of this chapter. And this last four chapters is one of the portions of Scripture that always grips my heart. Here we see, uh, as we have covered, uh, we see God's coming in splendor and glory and how God brings salvation through judgment. But the question remains before us, how can one rejoice, how can we rejoice in the face of calamity and crisis? especially when everything comes to ruin. We live by faith. And we see from the prophet Habakkuk, this living by faith is is not a defiant spitting at faith, nor is the prophet fatalistic. The prophet instead models for us, in these four verses, he models Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by his faith. So uh, listen as I read for us these four verses and it illustrates for us how living by faith looks like. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at sound. Rottenness enters my, into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the foe. There will be no hurt in the stores. Yet, yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God is the Lord. The God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He made me tread on my high places. Verse 16, we see the prophet and he responds to what God has uh, announced in the verses before. Just as the tents of Medan had trembled at God's coming, so now the prophet's body trembles. Like the rest of creation, the prophet's body cannot but help, cannot help but be overcome by God's awesome coming. When God comes in His full glory, he will be awestruck. Yet even though the prophet struggles, the knowledge of God's appearance allow him to wait with quiet confidence. For God to act against those invading his nation, to, to, he can wait in quiet confidence that God will come to act against those invading the nation. 
Judah's distress has been brought by his own violence and wickedness. Still, the prophet knows, both from the Exodus account and the conquest of the promised land, that there will be a day of reckoning for the oppressors of God's people. The oppressors may seem all-powerful in his eyes, but Habakkuk knows that they too will come to face a day of trouble, and the all-powerful God will thwart them and bring rescue to his people. But, but what does it mean to quietly wait? And Habakkuk answered this in verses 17 to 19 in a way that will almost be considered counterintuitive. We need to understand that Judah is a country that depends on agriculture. So verse 17, what it does, it, it talks about the devastation of the economy, devastation of the nation of Israel. It's a keen for us Singaporeans. It's like for us Singaporeans to say, though our economy should fail, though our GDP go into negative growth, and our, all our CPF savings are gone, and there is no groceries in NTUC, that's the situation that the nation of Judah faced. They faced ruin and hardship. But despite the ruin and hardship, the prophet knows that God is coming and will act against the oppressors and will save his people. But a period of struggle must happen. But this will not be the last word. Therefore, the prophet can rejoice in God, finding joy in the God of his salvation. Because although no timetable has been given, the prophet knows that God is coming. He anticipates, he looks forward to God's coming and he will exalt and rejoice in God's victory. Until then, it is God who is Habakkuk's strength, who lets him walk on high places with the certainty of a deer. It is this trust and confidence in God that makes the prophet Habakkuk a model for us all. Crisis and calamity is not the last word for us believers. Jesus overcomes the last crisis and conquers the ultimate calamity of sin and death. This joyous last word is the hope for all believers. Some of us may be struggling, some of us may be facing our own personal struggles, calamity and crisis. But this is the hope that we, uh, the Scripture has for us, that this is the joyous last word, that at Christ's first coming, the penalty and power of sin has been broken through His death and resurrection. And at His second coming, Jesus will decisively conquer sin and the final enemy, death. Crisis and calamity will no longer separate us from God. And Romans 8, 37-39 reminds us, No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am, sh I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Crisis and calamity is not the last word. We can now know the joy of being in the presence of our glorious, loving God who saves. Jesus has come 
and will be coming back again. And we can rejoice in His victory. As Bible teacher Opama Robertson writes, so a book beginning with complaint and distress ends in joy. Faith triumphs in life despite many calamities. Songs in the night anticipate the glad arrival of the eternal dawn in which the faithful shall receive their ultimate vindication. I know for some of us, we may be right now singing songs in the night. So what does it mean for us, believers on this side of the promises of the cross? Yeah, I speak now to those of us who are struggling, singing this song, struggling uh, in the night. What this means for us is that we live by faith. We wait, we hold firm, we remember the gospel and rejoice. As Pastor John Piper encourages us in our fight for joy, wait, don't do anything precipitous in those moments of darkness as though Jesus is not coming back. Remember, He will return. Jesus Christ is coming back and we can be sure of it. Wait with this perspective. Piper continues, there is hope for those who hold firm the trust in God, even as the calamity comes. We can hold on to our trust in God because we know how everything will all end. Crisis, calamity, opposition, even death will not be the last word. Revelation 17.14 pulls back the veil at the end of time, at the final battle between Christ and the enemies of God and our enemies. And this is what 17, uh, verse, uh, Revelation 17.14 tells us. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For He is the Lord of lords and kings of kings. And those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. Christ is the Lord of lords, King of kings. His power over creation his power to judge and to save. This is the coming King that we trust in and He will come. And the righteous continues to trust in this and live by faith. We trust, we rejoice because Jesus Christ, the Lamb, He has already conquered all. So my friends, ask yourself, how am I growing my trust in my God of justice and mercy. How have I been taking joy in the God of my salvation? Amid the violence, injustice and wickedness of this world, even as we are singing songs in the night, we are to trust in our great God and rejoice in His salvation. And as I invite the musicians to come up, the song leaders to come up, we, can, we will trust our great God and will take joy in His salvation. And this song of response that we're going to be singing next captures this well. So let me read just three verses from, from this song. In times of waiting, times of need, when I know loss, when I am weak, I know His grace will renew these days. The Lord is my salvation. Who is, the our, who is like the Lord our God, strong to save, faithful in love? My debt is paid and a victory won. The Lord is my salvation. And when I reach my final day, He will not leave me in the grave, but I will rise. He will call me home 
the Lord is my salvation. So friends, let us stand, let us sing these songs in our hearts and follow the example of Prophet Habakkuk and that this song will be our prayer song to our great God.